Can you hear? Uh huh. Can. Good. Excellent. So, in your Bibles, turn to John chapter 3, and you'll be exactly where you need to be. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Welcome, all you people who might be watching online, all you balcony watchers. Welcome. John chapter 3. So Greg's been in a series um, of more. We've talked about uh, how God can do more than we ask or imagine. We've talked about being more than conquerors. We've talked about how people are more important than things, more valuable than things, more. So a couple weeks ago when it was uh, my time to start thinking a little bit more uh, carefully, and diligently about what I was going to do this morning, I decided I was going to do something on less. Because often we think about more, there's also the juxtaposition of less. So this morning we're going to do, use the phrase, less is more. And the thought is, I'm going to give you the thought where I hopefully will end up, is that the less equals more, but more of what it is we really, 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 really want. So this past um, week, um, my old church where my parents uh, worshipped and where my dad preached, Dangerfield Church of Christ, Northeast Texas, they had not have a website. Well, I don't know. And to say they have a website now is still, it's pretty pretty elementary. Um, But I was looking around on there just actually this week, and they had online sermons. And I go through the online sermons, and there's the bottom tab that says Norman Miller. That's my dad. And there were about six sermons that he had done over the course of his uh, time there. And he was there 30 years. So, I mean, you, that's a lot of sermons. They had picked six, it looked like. And there was one over here that was, uh, he preached on October the 4th, I think, but in October of 2015. He passed away a little bit longer, about, about 15 months later. In January of 2017, it very might have been his last sermon. This was a Sunday night. They have Sunday night service. So he was up there um, giving some thoughts. If you listen to that sermon, I don't expect you to, but you'll hear in his phrasing, um, he is talking and even references that um, with some joyfulness and glee, actually, which my dad was not necessarily, you wouldn't call him a gleeful person, although I think he was joy-filled, that he knew the time was getting close to the end for himself. He talked about this verse, and he'd used it before from Second Peter. And I wanted to use it this morning as sort of a jumping-off spot. You know, some people have a word of the year. There was this dude, book, app, podcast, I don't know, who talked about, hey, you need a word for the year, a theme word for the year, maybe a phrase. I do not have one. I think it's great if you do. But people will take this theme word and go, this is my word for the year, and it helps them helps propel them to some sort of action or some outcome that they're desiring, right? So I don't have a theme word for a year, but I think if you were to come up with a word for me, perhaps my family would say, yeah, that's probably right, that I've talked about and I know I've talked from this stage and I know I've probably said at different occurrences, different occasions in the AFC room, is the word remember. The word remember is not in this verse, 13 and 14. Yay, I think it meet. Now, this is the King James Version. Honestly, it's been a long time since I've read the King James Version. 
So some of the phrasing and wording is a little bit different. Yea, I think it, I think it meet, important, as long as I'm in this tabernacle body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. I want to stir your memory. Knowing that shortly I must, I must put off this my tabernacle, my body, even as our Lord Jesus Christ had shown us by giving up his body. Obviously, I've added a little phrasing. My dad talked about this on that sermon given in October of 2015, how he thought that a lot of the job from this stage at different churches all over the world was really not so much to give you information, although there's information included, more application, but more than that, it was to stir your memory. So that at different occasions, in different different situations, when you find yourself maybe in some sort of conundrum or difficult spot, or perhaps maybe a joyful spot, your mind will go to things that are important to remember. You know, sometimes people will tell you, and they certainly have, if you've been in a difficult situation, maybe some sort of tribulation, trial, tragedy, somebody who's a close friend or family member will even try to compel you to think about, well, you remember, that's not what's most important, you know? That sort of phrasing. That's what we want to do. So the outcome of this day is at the end of my time in front of you is I want to be able to tell you and help you remember one of the things that I think will help your less, well, no, will help your more be more. I want to stir it this morning. That's the goal. So what do you remember about John the Baptist? What he wore, what he ate, how he died, Matthew 13th, remember, he was beheaded by a Herod because John was speaking up against Herod because Herod had married his brother's wife. So John is speaking against that. Herodias is his wife, had been the wife of his brother, daughter, Herod's stepdaughter, danced a fine jig in front of him and pleased him, and he promised you whatever you wanted. She goes back to her mother and says, I get whatever I want, what I want. No, not jewels, not half the land, not all the cattle in a thousand hills. I want the head of John the Baptist. So in John, I mean Matthew chapter 13, you find where Herod beheads John the Baptist. So the things that we know about John the Baptist, what he ate, what he, what he wore, how he died, how he paved the way for Jesus. Isaiah 40 tells us that John the Baptist is the voice crying in the wilderness, make a way, prepare a way for the Lord. So we know also that John the Baptist was the person who in, uh, through Bible prophecy and in the New Testament announced, declared the coming of Jesus. I want you to read with me in John chapter 3 where you've got your Bible or device and we're going to be in chapter 22 through 30. It will be on the screen from which I'll be reading the NIV. Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went into the Judean countryside. Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water there. And people kept coming to him for baptism. This was before, clearly, John was thrown into prison and certainly beheaded. A debate broke out, verse 25, between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to John and said, Rabbi, 
The man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, a.k.a. Jesus, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. And everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from him. Gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. Isaiah 40. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend, also known as, we'll call him groomsman, is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore... Joy at his success, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Greater and greater, less and less. More and more, lesser and lesser. So John is prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 40. He had every reason to feel exalted. He had been getting attention. He is mentioned in the prophets of old when they had been reading in the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees had been reading. They would have been reading about John the Baptist. It was right for him to get attention. It was right to get him acclaim. He had his own disciples. Do you have your own disciples? He had been bands of people who followed him around. They called themselves disciples of John the Baptist. He had every reason to get attention and notoriety. What does it tell us? What does it tell you when you read this passage about John's feelings? About that attention, notoriety, and acclaim being taken away. John wanted everyone's allegiance to switch to him, from him, to Jesus. And although he had been on the front lines, Jesus appears and John moves to the sideline or the background. He renounced his place, his will, his attention, his praise, his position for someone else. How good are you at doing that? Now, it's somewhat in human nature to want the attention. Don't we all on occasion? I want the attention. Maybe you might be able to think of, let's think about a business area, scenario in business. Where someone, you have a great idea and you've sort of been the boss, but somehow someone comes in and now they're the boss. You, you move to the background or the sideline or you don't know how the corner office, you have a hallway office that doesn't have a window. Perhaps you gave a great presentation. Everybody was taking notes and you were getting all the notice and all the claim. Hey, did you ever hear so-and-so speak? And then someone else speak, comes and they speaks and they're, they're better. They're getting the text and the good notes and the good words. Hey, love what you had to say. I'd never heard that before. Maybe you're a parent. And it was sort of peculiar situation that sometimes happened with teenage kids where teenagers start giving more attention or seeking more wisdom from another person other than a parent. Where the parent is now sort of moved into the background. Are there other situations where you've 
give up your idea, although you knew it was enormously brilliant. But someone else's idea got all the attention. No, uh, they, they choose his idea or her idea. You think, boy, if you would just do it my way, all would be good. John had every reason or every, let's say, human temptation, I bet, to his disciples. Yeah, no kidding. I've been baptizing longer. I've done it more. I'm better at it. Not only that, he's baptizing. I baptize him. But no. John's attitude is I will become less and less and he must become greater and greater. It's a little bit odd picture, perhaps, so let's try to see if you can see it. You've all been to weddings, been in a wedding as a groom's and a bridesmaid, or perhaps you've had a wedding in which you have been the bride or the groom. Now, you've got your photo album right there. Now, let's use my daughter. My daughter and my son-in-law are sitting right over here. They get married August the 16th. Get our pictures back. I thought it'd be funny if I were the dude, but it doesn't use the story right, so we're going to use a groomsman. Gabriel has a groomsman. Um, Let's say Cole. He had a couple of Coles in there. So Cole Randolph, who might be here this morning, is a groomsman. And while the photographer is going around taking all the pictures, and obviously the center of the picture is the bride and groom, and we sort of know it's really the bride, <laughs> is getting all the pictures, Cole decides, no, I want to be in all the pictures. I want to stand with Gabe. I want to stand with Aaron. I want to be in the center. So you've got the long line of the family. You remember who's in the middle? Cole. You got just the bride and the groom, or maybe it just has to be the bride. No, you get over here, Gabe. I'm going to stand next to Aaron as if it's their wedding. She's decked out in her white dress. He's sort of disheveled. Me. Cutting the cake. No, I insist on feeding an Aaron a piece of cake. How odd would that be? That's the picture painted in John 3. How silly for a groomsman, a standby, to come in and decide they're going to take the prominent position. I think that, and my main goal this morning, is for you to understand that the attitude that John had is ultimately the attitude you should have, and ultimately that's going to provide to you what it is you truly want, what your heart really cherishes. I want to show a couple of verses from Luke that demonstrate this through Jesus' words, through self-denial and giving up self. Very familiar verses. Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If anyone comes to me, separate chapter, same book. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. What? That's pretty stiff. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, when Jesus is talking about self-denial, he's talking about the surrendering of himself. He's talking about choosing him, his purpose over yours. His will over yours. His place over your place. Purpose, purpose. Attention, attention. 
not your way, but his way. He becomes greater, you become less. Let's just pause for a second and let you reflect. What is an area of your life, is there a relationship, perhaps, where you know or a situation where you know you need to become less and less? Although it might be hard to do. That lesser and lesser principle this self-denial principle that Jesus talks about in the two Luke passages, actually is and becomes the principle upon which we base and build our behavioral patterns. So as I become less and less, and he becomes greater and greater, there are things I will do, And there are things I won't do. I don't think it's necessary, both from a time perspective and an audience perspective, to provide a laundry list of the wills and won'ts or the do's and don'ts. Excuse me. We'll just assume that you're wise enough to know that if you become less important and you elevate Jesus and then others, as we will see in a second, that your behavior patterns will look different. Let's say it even another way, or not say it another way, but let's look at this counting the cost phrase. So self-denial, the verses we have about I hate myself, I'm going to have to hate my parents, I can't take up the cross, you can't be Jesus' disciple unless you do that. That counting the cost does not mean, although we often believe it means that we're counting the cost to lose something. It seems natural. I'm counting the cost. I'm denying myself. I'm giving up self. That must equal I'm losing something. But what Jesus really means is counting the cost actually gains you something and something more valuable, greater value. In Matthew chapter 13, there's two quick verse parables. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has so that he can buy that field where that Treasure is hidden. He is going to sell everything because he's found something more valuable. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. He's seeking beautiful pearls. And he's found one pearl of great price. Went and sold all that he had and bought it because it was with great value. An example from relationships. When someone chooses someone, 
to be their wife or husband. You forego all other pearls because you found the one prized pearl. For the kingdom of heaven, we give all that is of ourselves and give away all of ourselves because we found something of greater value. The problem is that we're human. We often get our priorities mixed up. If we started, started prioritizing our life based on what our heart tells us is important, we'd be out of whack. But just for a few examples in regard to getting, losing something or giving away ourselves, but actually finding something of greater value, let's try it this way. If you, in your marriage, could have considered your will, place, or purpose less your own personal will, purpose, place. Do you not think your marriage would be better? We'll just say it incorrectly. Don't you think your marriage would be more better? How about your friendships? If you worry less about yourself and you diminish your place to the elevation of your friends, are your friendships better? Your workplace... Too often what my own heart purposes in a relationship, in a friendship, in a marriage is my own place. I elevate my will, my purpose, my plan, my dream, my goal, my attention. Right here, Brian. Marriages work best, and you know this. The problem is the heart getting to go with it is that if I diminish and become the more selfless I am, what happens? I'm more joyful in my marriage. I'm more peaceful in my marriage. My marriage is looking like I dreamt it would look on our marriage wedding day. But what has to happen for the more better is less of you. This principle is not unusual. Great musicians practice self-denial. Pick your great musician that you like. Across any genre... They have to practice self-denial to get what they consider to be greater. We practice this all the time. We do it. Great athletes. I thought yesterday about Hank Aaron. I don't know much about him personally, only from a statistical standpoint in baseball. But great athletes sacrifice. Do you think great athletes who've achieved great things or musicians who've who've achieved great acclaim in their field would tell you that they feel deprived? you got a marriage and the husband... Let's say me because I'm married and I'm up here. If I become more selfless and more selfless, more selfless, do you think I would describe my marriage as deprived? No. This principle we practice. The problem is that sometimes we get askew with our hearts, right? We all know people who have had this goal in mind, something that they did consider greater value. But it was the wrong thing, right? And they did sacrifice. And they did sacrifice. And even achieved this thing they felt was of greatest value. 
but it didn't bring any of the comfort, joy, or peace that they thought it would. It only works because the only satisfying thing that your heart will ever feel that gives it its fullest, best feeling that it was created to have, if I said that right, you get it, is when you leave yourself behind and get more Jesus. He becomes greater and you become lesser. So we've done mission trips in AFC, and I did them before I got here. This verse in Philippians is one I've used often as a theme verse. I don't have a theme word, but yeah, whenever we go on mission trips, I'll go, hey, you need to get a verse to help you what? I want you to have a verse in your head because I want you to get your mind right in your head. Because on a mission trip, you're going to be at some point put in a situation your mind's not right. So don't want to get your mind right. So my mind right verse was this one. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or uh, vain conceit, however, rather in humility value others better than yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. How this plays out with me. I'm going to give you an actual real world example that I was a failure in just a few weeks ago. No, just a few days ago. So Leslie was gone this past weekend, right? No, the weekend before that. Thank you. <laughs> oh, masked one. So before then, I was reading on Facebook. I'm normally on there just because AFC posts Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Usually when I'm posting, there's a mistake, a grammar mistake, a word. It still does it when I text. It's always autocorrecting. I don't even mess with it. Most people, I think, they go, it's Brian. Huh, forget it. I get what he's saying. But I'm on Facebook. I'm looking there, and someone says, hey, we want to do this meal train for somebody. And I thought to myself, meal train? Well, I've never cooked anything. For, well, I mean, not, not in a meal train where you go deliver food to someone. I've never cooked a casserole. I don't know if people even make casseroles. Do people call them casseroles anymore? I don't even know. But I haven't cooked a meal for anybody that I've taken to. Now, Leslie has, of course, but Leslie was gone, remember? I had the whole weekend free. I read that and thought, I should do that. I went home slouched around on the couch with my feet propped up and just skimmed channels. In my mind, sometimes, uh, let's say it this way, when the spirit, I think, is prompting me to be lesser and lesser, the way it plays out in my mind is it comes out in a little bit of words that look like this. Man, I don't really want to do that. Or, I should do that. A prompting by the Spirit to do something lesser of self because I wanted to go be a slug on the couch. I had the weekend free. Could have run easily run through Chick-fil-A, which I'm doing constantly anyway, grab some food, which she had said that this is something I would eat, and go and drop it off. It would have been the simplest thing. And you know what would have happened had I done that? But I didn't. I'm saying I did not do that. The whole weekend... I would have come back, retained my place on my said couch, propped my feet up and skimmed through, but I would have had a feeling in my heart that was good. I just would have. Not because I'm great, because I think our heart feels good when we deny ourselves to the good of someone else. So we practice releasing our wills to be content with the sidelines or the background. Less of me more of him gives me 
what I truly desire. Again, the example is this, because our relationships really are the forefront of our lives. What gives us the most grief, pain, joy, happiness? What probably occupies your mind, married people or relationship people, more than anything? It's your family or spouse. I think about Leslie more than I think about anybody else or anyone or anything else. Or family. Leslie to family. If I want that to be great, it's going to require me lesser and lesser. In my relationship as my faith journey goes along the way, my relationships, my job, my business, my home, my finances, all works better when Christ is elevated. I wrote a few things down here that were just simple, a couple that didn't even mean anything to you, but just as examples, this less, more principle. Less gossip, maybe more friends. Less keeping, probably more giving. You can think of all kinds of lesses, mores for your own life. So I wanted to remember, and you, I'm talking to you, and preachers, teachers, sermon people, givers often say, I'm speaking to myself more than I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to myself because I'm the guy that slouched on the couch and listened to the Holy Spirit say, man, I don't want to really... I'm going to give you another example of that. Sunday afternoons are sacred. You know it. Couch, quilt, football game, drowsing in and out, Diet Coke right there on the table phone within reach because you don't want to get up and get it if it goes off but if it dings you'll sit there and worry it's something serious so you got to have it close all of your remotes lined up right there maybe you're in bed maybe you just get on in the bed change into your pajamas and forget it <laughs> Sunday afternoon is special sacred somebody comes to me and says hey I need to move on this and it's like the only time I do is Sunday afternoon I'm like oh, okay and they say, hey, we're going to move. Hey, I'm going to have to move. It's across town. It's, Brian. it's College Station to Brian. I'm going to like, who wants to drive that far? Remember when you lived in the Metroplex? We're talking about Brian. It's right there. It's not even a different city. They designate it with some sign that has a population that's outdated. That's the only difference. Oh, I got to go down to Brian. What time? Maybe it's early in the afternoon where I can get back. Maybe it's late in the afternoon where I do the, oh, no, how about 2.30? What? And they say, hey, we're going to move to the second or third floor of an apartment building. What? What idiot gets a second or third floor apartment? First floor, have mercy. And then they got to borrow a truck, and you got to run down to U-Haul and rent a dolly. Tip, get your own dolly. <laughs> Put it in the utility room and forget it. Someday you're going to need it. That's one of those things that all you people looking to see what you get, already get your son or your son-in-law. I'm going off now too early. I know I'm already late, whatever. Get your son or your son-in-law a dolly. It's one of those things later on they'll go, they wish they had. It's like jumper cables. You got your own jumper cables? No. You should have them. Otherwise, you'll be stuck in Walmart all over, parking lot. Okay, I'm done. Leslie's giving me the aisle. She's not, but I'm not even looking at her. 
Her eyes, she got her eyebrows already hitting her hairline. I mean. <laughs> I really need to have the word remember because I have no idea now what I was saying. <laughs> oh, the moving thing. When that happens, what happens to me, my mind, the spirit says, man, I don't really want to do that. Or I should do that. How does he prompt you? So I remember on such occasions when we aren't getting our way, we're not getting what we want, our prayers aren't answered, that in all those situations, it is his way, purpose, will, not ours. It is the best. And that leads us to the fullest life. Even perhaps against what our eyes see or what our heart thinks it wants, the less and less and less of ourselves actually will give you as hot as it is, the fullest life. And it can only be that way because of God's wisdom and how he created us. Will you pray with me? So, Father, we are thankful for your word. We thank you for John the Baptist. We thank you for our, the, the scriptures that we have openly available to us. Help our hearts desire to be in your word and to pray to you for the college students who I work with more, creating them a tug, a nudge, a a thirst, an itch that can never be taken care of except that they spend time with you in your word and in prayer. Help us all learn that as we are on this faith journey, less and less of ourselves equals more and more of you and more and more of what our heart really wants and will cherish. In Jesus' name, amen.